Well, good morning. I would ask you how you're enjoying your Memorial Day weekend, but I'm not sure how much different this weekend is than any other weekend that you've had in the last couple months, but uh, I trust that you're enjoying it, maybe taking some time to think about um, the, the meaning of Memorial Day a weekend in the United States. Every Bibles, you can turn to James chapter number four. James chapter number four. I want to begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I just want to take a moment to express what I've been expressing all day long already. And that is that the topic we're going to be discussing today is difficult. Give us ears to hear and hearts to apply your word. Christ's name, amen. One of the major problems that the Christians James was writing to, that he was addressing, had to do with quarreling. As a matter of fact, we're in the middle of a section that began with uh, chapter number three, verse number one, where James talks about the use of the tongue. And this section runs all the way through chapter four and verse number 12, where he speaks of speaking, or he talks about speaking evil of one another. In the verses in between, the beginning and the end here, in no uncertain terms, he states that and teaches that if one has problems with their tongue and quarreling and fighting, then the, the ultimate issue has to do with the heart. There's a heart problem underlying all of this. In chapter number three, verses nine to 12, James illustrates the heart problem. This is right after the tongue section. And he gives the illustration of a spring or a well. If it's putting out good water, then that means it's good down deep. If it puts out bad water, it's bad down deep. Same thing with your words. Whatever is in your mouth is in your heart. In verses 13 to 18, he goes on to say, that these problems with our words come up because we are using worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom he describes as being demonic. He says in verse number 16 that it manifests itself through jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder, and vile practice. But somebody who has God's wisdom, he describes is as being peaceable and gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the way he describes the two different kinds of wisdom. Worldly wisdom, which causes strife one way. Godly wisdom, which causes peace another way. But I want you to notice how he ends chapter number three with verse number 18. He says this, he said, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so peace comes to those who make peace. In fact, we're going to see in the passage that I read today that people with true faith have humble hearts that avoid selfish quarreling. That's a, another characteristic of somebody who's a Christian, somebody who has true faith. They are peacemakers, and it comes from having a humble heart that depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not often how we think uh, about quarreling, is it? I would guess that if I asked the average person, 
why are you quarreling and fighting? They're going to say, I'm fighting because of that blockhead over there. Or I'm fighting because I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Or I'm angry because my hormones are raging. Or, or maybe you say, I fight because I learned this behavior from my parents. And notice the common denominator here. It's, it's not really my fault. It's something else causing it. But is this really true? Well, let's read what James says in the first three verses of James chapter number four. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now notice what James says. James says, that one of the reasons we fight is because we have misplaced desires. I am not getting what I want. We are not getting what we want, and so we begin to fight for it. Or as James puts it, he says that your passions are at war within you. You fight because your desire or your displeasure or what you want, what you don't want, what you long for and what you crave is being frustrated. These frustrated desires cause you to fight. Our cravings rule our lives. They directly compete with God for lordship. No problem is more profound or more universal. James uses a very interesting word here. He says that your passions are at war within you. Or he says you, you have fights and wars. That word war is a very interesting word. It, it describes like trench warfare. We don't get what we want, and so we dig in, and ultimately we become entrenched, and we choose our personal desires over love for others. Now you might say, well, that just sounds a little bit far-fetched. Well, see, let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Let's say you have a couple the man, the husband, he's on his way home from work. He's had an exhausting day. And as he's driving home, he's thinking to himself, when I get home, I'm going to pour myself a tall glass of tea, and I'm going to sit down and put 10 toes up, and I'm going to relax for a little bit. And his wife is at home, and she's been with all the kids all day long, and they've been acting like their father. And she says to herself, good, he's going to get home in a little bit. And when he gets home, I'm going to hand these kids over to them and I'm going to get a break. Now, what do you envision happening when they get home? Well, I'll ask another question before I answer that one. And the other question is this, are either one of these desires wrong? The answer is no. It's not wrong to desire a break from the children for a few minutes. It's not wrong to relax, after, have a desire to relax after work. But when these good desires become ruling desires, then you end up with war and quarrels and fights. If the desire is too intense, then they begin to blame each other 
and, and they'll begin to, to feel the unquestionable logic of self-righteousness that, that uh, manifests itself by saying, I deserve this. Or, or self-pity, the pity party that says, he or she always gets their way. It's my turn to get my way. And neither person may stop and ask, why am I fighting? And James says that these, these desires lead to war. Unmet desires lead to war. He says in verse number two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and you war, uh, you quarrel. And so unmet desires lead to quarreling. Now, does James really mean to say that if you don't get you what you want, you're going to murder? No, he's not saying that at all. What he's using is the most extreme example. If you don't get what you want, you can get angry about that. It can escalate. The ultimate end would be murder. Verbal argument, private violence, or even national conflict the cause of all of them can be traced back to the frustrated desire that we want what we do not have. And we, we're envious and we covet what other people have and their, their position or their possessions. And so we fight and we quarrel to get it. James also goes on to say that selfish prayer goes unheeded. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Some people, they pray fervently and they pray regularly, but they're praying out of self-centered motives to spend it on their own desires. And, and the Bible says, James says that they do not receive it. You know, clear instances in other people are very easy to discern, aren't they? For example, the you can see somebody else's desire for luxurious standard of living. You, you can see somebody else's desire for promotion or status or for reward or recognition. It's really easy to spot when somebody else is praying for that, and you can, you can spot it real quick. But it's, it's, it's much harder when we're praying and we couch these desires in some seemingly noble requests. For example, We'll, we'll pray for good health so that we can serve Christ better. Or we'll pray for good finances so that we can take care of our families properly. Or we'll pray for a good job so that we can better exercise our spiritual gifts there. And so we take our selfish desires and we couch them in noble causes. And ultimately, God can see that these are selfish desires and these prayers are not answered. Paul goes on, or Paul, James, Paul probably says it too, but James is saying here that selfish ambition, in verse number four he says, selfish ambition leads to spiritual adultery. Look at what he says in verse number four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The people that James is writing to are selfish people. They're adulterous people because they're cheating on God. Their attention and their allegiance and their affection are not toward God and his people, but rather towards themselves and the world. Now, for a Christian, this is a temporary condition. A Christian usually is not allowed to live in a permanent condition like this. 
people who are in a permanent condition of living for the world, living for selfish desires, the Bible would call those unregenerate people. That's why he uses the word world. And by world, he's talking about a system that is at odds with God. It's, it's fallen humanity collectively shaking its fist at God, turning its back on the, on the creator. And God calls these people um, the unregenerate. But people who do this temporarily are called adulterers. Because we as Christians are to be faithful to God. And when we aren't, we're, we're committing spiritually adult, uh, spiritual adultery. This worldliness in the church causes quarrels and conflicts because worldly ideals and goals always conflict with God's ideals and goals. Those moves split churches and destroy ministries. And James offers a solution to this selfish ambition. What is it? The solution to selfish ambition and worldliness is submission to God. Let's read verses five through eight together, will we? Verse number five. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we fight and quarrel, we are submitting to our desires for pleasure. We are also displaying pride. God will oppose those who quarrel and fight in the church and give grace to those in the church who are humble. The solution, then, to quarreling in the church is to submit, to submit to God. Not submit to our desires, but submit to God as our Lord. Um, submit yourselves to God is what James says. And submitting to God proves um, that that. Uh, it's the, I'm sorry, submitting to God is diametrically opposed to the world system. You see, the world would, believes in autonomy. It believes in power and self-assertion. And so the world would say, you know what? If you believe that you are right, you need to fight for it. And what God says is, submit to me in Submit your rights to others in the assembly. Don't fight for your rights. That's God's job. God fights for your rights, not you. What does submitting to God look like? Well, what James says is that submitting to God is resisting the devil. It's to refuse to engage in pure, impure thoughts. It's to flee from the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee or other places, it's flipped, and you flee from the devil. And fleeing might be literal or figurative, having to flee the place of temptation. But, or it might even be resisting the devil might simply be living morally in an immoral world. But notice what verse number 8 says. Verse number 8 tells us to draw near to God. But drawing near to God is just not a, a mental or emotional activity. Drawing near to God looks like this in James. James talks about it all through his, his book. 
drawing near to God is controlling our tongue in chapter one and chapter number three. It's um, caring for the poor in chapter one and chapter number two. It's growing in wisdom and peace in chapter one and three. It's communing with him in prayer in chapter four and five. And the more we seek God's wisdom, the closer we will grow in his purity and holiness. Verse number 10 tells us this, because for most of us, humility, humbling ourselves is hard to do. We have verse number 10. Notice what it says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now understand this. Humbling ourselves may not see exaltation on this side of heaven, but on this side of heaven, when you humble yourself to God, in eternity, God will exalt you. Now, if you had your choice between temporary exaltation here on earth, where you fight for your rights, you assert your rights, you assert and get the glory for yourself, and that only lasts a little bit of time, or you humble yourself and your rights are trampled upon and somebody else gets their way and somebody else gets their desire, but in heaven, for all of eternity, you are exalted by the one who created you. Isn't that a great exchange? That's what God's talking about here. Humility leads to exaltation. Um, people who are humble do not seek their rights for positions of leadership, but they allow God to encourage and to lift them up as he sees fit. Um, in contrast with pride and selfish ambition in the church, only self-abasement and repentance is needed to gain true exaltation with God. But I want to go to the last section of, of this um, personal part of James where he's speaking about our heart and, and how it comes out in the tongue. In verses number 11 and 12, James says that humility does not speak against others. Verse number 11, let's read it together. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or, get this, judges his brother, speaks evil against and the law and judges the law. That's very interesting. We're gonna unpack that in a minute. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verses 11 and 12 return to our use of tongue, specifically in this area of speaking evil against another person or criticizing another person. What James is, is really talking about here is critical judgments, because he says speaking evil, but he also uses the word judge, and you can judge without speaking. It can be in your mind or in your heart, and speaking evil is making a critical judgment verbally, and we, dear Christian, are called to love our brothers. When we speak against a brother, we are judging the law. Now, what does that mean when he says, you are judging the law when you speak evil against another person? Well, this is how it works. God's law is, is God's command, is moral commands for us, and, and we're given commands, and one of them is to love our brother. And when we decide 
that we're going to judge a brother or speak critically of another brother or sister, we are judging the law in that we are deciding that to love that brother is not as important as some of the other commands in Scripture. We are deciding that having speech that edifies and, and purifies another person is not as important as the other commands of Scripture, and therefore, we become a judge of the law. In essence, we, he is saying that we set ourselves up as God. Listen to what he says. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is who is able to save and to destroy. That's God. And then he turns, he ends verse number 12 by saying, but who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, are you trying to act like God? You're not God. Now, let me put it in plain English. Are you ready? When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. And we play self-righteous judge in, in the many kingdoms that we establish. And we make judgments such as, you're so stupid, or you're cruel, or you're insensitive, or you're selfish, and you're getting in the way of what I want. You're a hindrance to my agenda, and so therefore, I will judge you. I want to close by being extremely practical, by talking about something that's on everybody's mind. And I want you to please listen with an open heart because this is directly applying what James is talking about here. I am asking you to obey Scripture by not judging your brothers and sisters in Christ in this matter of the coronavirus. Unfortunately, Satan seems to be having a field day in the lives of his saints in Christendom in America and other places. There are some who believe that if you do not wear a mask when we meet back together, you are not loving your brother and you are endangering other people's health. And there are other people who believe that this wearing the mask business is a bunch of baloney and that um, the people who are wearing the mask are living in fear. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's right? There are some who believe that we should be having church right now. The governor said we should have church. We should have it in the assembly at Providence Bible, the building there right now. And there are others who believe that if we open anytime soon, we're endangering the lives of others, and we should wait as long as possible to worship together. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's right You know, neither side in this debate can say that they're 100% right. They're not 100% sure that they're right. I'll say this. If you are so sure of your position that you can make critical judgments of another Christian in this area of the coronavirus, then James, not me, James says that there's one of two roots in that person's judgment. Are you ready? The first root that James says 
is the root of selfishness. James says in verses uh, 1 to 3 that when others stand in the way of what we want, we strive to remove their opposition by tearing down them, by tearing down or diminishing their credibility and their influence in any way we can. And so if your goal is to make yourself safe, then you will tear down other people who you think is endangering your safety. And if you think, and your goal is I want to get back together, and these people who think that we need to be a little bit more conservative, they're in the way of your getting back together, then you're going to diminish their opinion any way you can, and that is classic James 4, 1 to 3. James also says there's another root, and that other root is um, pride, thinking we're better than others. We set ourselves up as their judge, and we begin to catalog their failings and condemn their actions. And we, as we saw earlier, when, when we do that, we're imitating Satan because we're trying to play God by judging others. Pride can also reveal itself in the inclination to believe, hey, I alone understand this whole coronavirus thing. Everybody else is wrong. I'm the one who is following the right person. I'm the one who, who has the right uh, position on all this. I alone understand the truth. I think my convictions and my beliefs are true, and I look down my nose to anybody who disagrees with me. And so if you have no doubt that all of this is overblown, and you think, don't even question me, then the issue is pride. Now, I know that the words I'm saying sound harsh, but they're right in our passage in James, and I... and the elder board is getting inundated by both sides of this, whatever issue that we think. And people are, are expressing with confidence that they're 100% sure that what they believe is true and everybody else needs to submit. And if we are not careful, Satan is going to have a heyday in our assembly by causing division. Now, what I am not saying, please listen, okay? Please listen. What I'm not saying is that there's no room for disagreement, because there is. I have a position, and I disagree with a lot of people in my position, and no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I am not, because then you won't listen to me. But there's not, there is room for disagreement. Of course, we're going to disagree with one another. But when we disagree, there should be loving, tactful graciousness in our disagreeing, but in the, is the unity of the body of Christ one of those doctrines that we jealously guard? According to Ephesians 2.14, the unity of the church is one of the objects of Christ's death. Christ died for the unity of the church, according to Ephesians 2.14. This is, as much as anything else, is what the New Testament calls us to cherish and uphold. We need to cherish and uphold unity in the church, and so we love one another. 
I want to leave with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 2 and 3. Read it with me together. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That's the pride that James is talking about. Or conceit. That's, that's what um, uh, James, is, uh, James is talking about. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The key to this is to have a humble heart, dear believer. I'm going to close by reminding you of one thing and one thing only. Be humble. Let's be mindful of what we truly know. And of all things, what we really don't know. Because there's a lot we know and there's a lot we don't know. Along the same lines, let's pray for our leaders, the men and women of wisdom and courage who want to do the right thing. And the best thing, no matter what it is and no matter who gets the credit. And finally, let's admit our finite knowledge. And that should make us gracious toward those who want the same ends in the crisis but don't reach the same conclusions as you. At some point, everything may be obvious, and it may not happen in the next year or two years or five years, but at present, we don't know all the answers or likely even all the questions to ask. So as your pastor, I am asking you, can we be gracious with other believers who differ from us, because what causes quarrels among you, it is that our desires are being thwarted, our passions are at war. May the Lord make us a humble assembly of believers, humbly trusting God and great being gracious toward those who disagree. Let's all pray to that end together as we close. Lord, this has been a tough message to deliver, tough truths, because so many people are so sure of their own opinions, and frankly, we're not God, we're not the Holy Spirit, and we don't have all the answers. And so, Lord, I plead with you that we will be a gracious assembly because your son died for our unity. Lord, call us to unity. I pray that we will repent of our pride. We will repent of our selfishness. We will watch our words and we will guard our hearts from judgment. And Lord, that we will do that in your honor, in your glory, in Christ's name, amen.